welcome to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus here on Radio Fodder. Welcome to another semester of Radio Silence. This is semester number eight. Oh my gosh, what? is it actually? Can you believe it? <laughs> no, I genuinely can't. Far out. Uh, we just... Can't yeah, stop, won't stop. I know, it just keeps going. Um, Will yeah. we ever leave uni? That's yeah, the I, I was going to say, oh, I've been students for a while. <laughs> no, question. we didn't even start as undergrads. That's the sad thing. Postgrads <laughs> when we start. Anyway. Uh, yeah, when you realise you've been in postgrad more than you've been in undergrad. Uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> let's let's talk about our personal like crises another time. Let's talk about some science today. Please. And we're, I don't know if I've introduced myself. I'm Kai, so... Sup, Kai. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Um, who are you? Who am I? I'm Cade. Sup. Nice and I'm Katrina. Excellent. And today's theme is robots. So I'm going to yeah. start off by asking you guys, did you ever have like a childhood robot or robot story something? Cade, why don't you start us off? Yeah. So I personally was not the owner of these robots. My little brother was, and I was forever... Very jealous of this fact. <laughs> but did you guys do you guys remember or did you ever have you know there was the Robo Sapien mm-hmm. and the Robo Raptor? Yes. So the yes. Robo Raptor was like the T Rex. Yeah, of like yeah, yeah, yeah. Ra- These things were like huge. They yep. were like I don't know how big is that like forty centimeters. 50 I still centimeters. have one. <laughs> <laughs> I still have one. <gasps> you still have one. <laughs> my God. Okay, so Matt, my brother had had both the Robo Raptor and the Robo Sapien, which means he couldn't. He obviously couldn't play with them both. They were mm. remote control. So we I, we would get one each and we would like fight them and we would battle them. <laughs> and I liked I liked using the Robo Raptor and getting him to like tail whip. Mm-hmm. I would never win, but it just I felt more like a raptor at heart and. That has not changed. It's my robot story. Fair enough. <laughs> Got to ask you, which is that the like the first generation of the Robo Sapien or the second? Oh, I don't know because I always had the Raptor, but the, I had the black Raptor, not Ooh, the white one. Okay. Oh, yeah, spicy. Mm. Um, I think it was a first gen Robo Sapien. Okay, and then the Raptor was the newer one because it was the one that came in black. Oh, fancy. <laughs> yeah, so I had the Robo Sapien, the first gen one, yeah. and my friend had the second generation one, yeah. and it was like. Obviously, so much cooler. Obviously. <laughs> That's how they get you. Yeah. Uh, Katrina, what about you? Um, I said I still have a robot. But but the thing is, I didn't really have them as a child. Oh, you got it yeah. as an adult. Yes. <laughs> oh, I love yeah. that even more. Yeah. Um, well, during lockdown in particular, um, I I had, I had took home from work <laughs> an M-Bot, which is like a little car mm, that yeah. you can program um, and code to drive. So I just – I didn't have any pets. I didn't have any people living with me. So oh I just God. partied with an M-Bot. But you had a little had lockdown a M-Bot. M-Bot. Oh, that's – yeah, <laughs> phenomenal. Oh, that's so good. All right, well, we're going to talk a bit more about robots after – we get into the news. So, Cade, why don't you start us off? Yeah, cool. So, my news story um, is one that I am particularly excited about because so the way I normally choose news stories for this show, I don't know if you guys are the same as scrolling through, like, the science media exchange mm-hmm. or whatever and seeing what's... So, I was scrolling through that and I saw this study yesterday and then last night at, like, 11 p.m., uh, my lab head, we have a Slack channel that's, like, Cool Papers, just, like, sent through this exact study <laughs> to our Cool Papers <laughs> Slack channel because it's, like, very slightly related to my research. Mm-hmm. And I was like, huh, Andy, for once, I was on top of it before you, yeah. for my radio <laughs> show. I didn't even... And then I, my follow-up thought was, damn, I should have sent the paper to the Cool Papers Slack channel. you could have been the cool person. I could have been the one to break the news to the lab. But this paper is very exciting because it's, it's the first kind of look at psilocybin, which is, I don't know if you guys are aware, but essentially the active component of magic mushrooms, mm-hmm. um, looking at it to treat anorexia. So... Mm-hmm. 
This is a study that's come out of the University of California, uh, San Diego, and has been published this week in Nature Medicine. And it is looking at this idea of psychedelic-assisted therapy. So I care about this because I'm kind of looking at psychedelic-assisted therapy for, you know, alcohol and uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is my research. But here they're looking at it for um, anorexia. Mm. It's particularly exciting because, because this year in Australia, as of the 1st of July, um, both psilocybin and MDMA have been rescheduled and are legal in Australia yeah. for very specifically MDMA for the treatment of um, post-traumatic stress disorder and mm-hmm. psilocybin currently only for treatment re- treatment resistant depression. Mm. Okay. But, but Australia, first country in the world. Sorry. That's it. It's like progress. And once yeah. it's approved for something. Like exactly. And yeah. Australia, we're the first place in the world to have done this. So this is wow. like Ooh. exciting and revolutionarily just like it's really, really cool. And so obviously we're branching out to other illnesses. And so this has been a study where they've looked at um, anorexia. And this is super, super preliminary stuff. So I don't know how much you guys know about clinical trials and how they work, but generally Mm. the first thing that you do before you're like, oh, does this help treat the illnesses? Is this safe? Yeah. Is Mm. this safe and tolerated in this people? So this study found (laughs) that the psilocybin was safe and well tolerated in a group of just 10 women with anorexia. Mm. So very, very preliminary stuff. The exciting thing is that after three months, most of the participants uh, self-reported positive changes in terms of their anorexia. And four of them, so four out of ten, um, their symptoms dropped so much that they qualified as in remission after oh. this kind of three-month period. But like I said, that's not really what we care yeah, about with yeah. this study. What it's we care promising. about is, you know, the the safety. Hmm. And this is, you know, this is particularly important as like a safety trial because – there was a lot of concern around psilocybin, particularly in, like, this population of people, people with anorexia. They often have, like, low body weight, which can have, like, cardiovascular issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was additional safety concerns in sort of this population that didn't exist in other populations that have looked at psilocybin safety already. Um, so it's very exciting. And there are currently no approved pharmacological interventions for anorexia mm. um, at all, despite anorexia being the condition, the psychiatric condition with the highest mortality rate. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. So this is, like, super, 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 mm. super exciting stuff. And, I like, this was out of America, but I know that there is, at Monash University, Claire Foldy's lab, doing some preclinical looking at, like, mice and rats mm. um, work with psilocybin and anorexia. Mm. And it's, it's really interesting stuff and mm. very exciting. And so that's my news for the week. <laughs> I'm, I'm hyped about drugs. What's new? <laughs> Kai, what have you got? Uh, so, have you ever found that peeling off a Band-Aid is almost as painful as the original injury? <laughs> I mean, Sometimes it's I, ouch. <laughs> but are you like a, a slow peel or a ripper? Uh, it depends on the situation. Like, sometimes... I'm a ripper. Yeah. All the way. Because okay. then it's just done. And then it's like, sure, that hurt a little bit. But, like, what doesn't? Well, some- <laughs> <laughs> Everything hurts. I mean... <laughs> some yeah. wounds can't be fixed with a Band-Aid. <laughs> anyway, so... Your, your sticky bandages have to strike some sort of delicate balance. They need to be sticky enough mm-hmm. so that they stay stuck, but not so sticky that it hurts to peel off. Right. And this is also kind of true for any sort of sticky tape-like thing. You know, you want to be able to peel it off eventually, probably. So <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Depends on the application. Most of the time, you know, it's annoying when the sticky tape gets stuck and doesn't come off. Mm-hmm. But researchers have been looking into this, and they found a way to make sticky tape both strong at sticking and weak. And it's yeah. the way that okay. they do it is what? they cut l- tiny little U-shapes in the sticky tape. Uh-huh. And what this means is now there's all these little tabs in the tape. And if you peel the tape 
going from like the direction of the top of the U's, it sort of peels the tabs up with the tape. Right. Yeah, so it's, it's like, like a one way. Like a I'm thinking one way valve. But like it's like a one, a one way <laughs> yeah. sticky tape. Yeah, yeah. If you peel it from one end, it peels off normally. If yeah. you peel it from the other like end, like the oh way. Um, what are they called? Like cable tires, right? Uh, yeah. The same sort of yeah, principle. You tighten. Kinda. You can keep you can tightening can a cable way. tie in one way, but it will lock in the other direction. Yeah, that's that's essentially it. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it's really cool because it can be about 60 times stronger or 60 times harder to peel off when you're peeling it in the <coughs> wrong way as if you peel it the other way. Yeah, so they, okay. they effectively wow. made the tape 60 times stickier. Yeah. Gosh. Um, which is which is pretty cool. And then they, they did some tests. Like they stuck a picture frame onto the wall using mm-hmm. normal sticky tape and it fell off after 20 minutes. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then they did the same thing with their new extra sticky tape. Well, mm-hmm. it's not even extra sticky. It just has these little tabs cut yeah. in it. And it stayed there for a week, okay. and then they went, "Wow, we're bored of this. Let's take it down." <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so that's a good solution for like you know not being able to hammer nails into a oh yeah into a rental wall. property. Yeah. <laughs> landlords are going to froth this. Uh, yeah, so obviously this sort of technique could be useful in things like band aids and other medical mm. tapes, like mm. if you're you know taping any sort of monitor to your skin. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. But also kind of on theme with today's topic, it could be. Looking at variable adhesion is something that they want to do for robot mm. gripping, like, mm-hmm. hands and stuff. Oh, yeah, okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, that sort makes of sense. technique could be pretty cool. Mm. But that's kind of jumping the gun. We've got some more news <laughs> before we get into robots. Katriona, what have you got? Well, just like Cade was really excited about a piece of news that was kind of related to Cade's work, <laughs> um, microbes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very excited. So... Essentially, just before we're born, we're completely sterile inside in inside the uterus. But when you're born and immediately afterwards, that's when you're exposed to the world and the world is full of microbes. Mm-hmm. Um, so we gain some healthy microbes from our, our biological mums when we're born and early in life. And the bacteria that live in our guts, so that microbiome that we pick up, that keeps us happy, healthy and alive and linked to health. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but squash bugs don't acquire any bacteria from their parents when they're first born, and that leaves them vulnerable because they don't have a gut microbiome. Um, And so what they do is young bugs innately seek out and eat the poo from older squash bugs. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... So, um, if it works, I guess. Yeah, right. You've got to do what you got to uh, do. So, this is something that Emory <laughs> University researchers recently found out, and and they, when they tested it, they were like, "Oh, wow, this is actually a deliberate thing," because squash bugs they potentially live in like not the cleanest of environments. So then the researchers are like, "Oh, is it just because they?" are gross, but no, it's deliberate. Um, so the researchers had test up arenas to see what squash bug nymphs, so like the, the young, mm-hmm. would gravitate towards if they were given a choice. Mm. And when they were presented with the option of poo or saline, they repeatedly moved towards the poo from adults of only their species. So they're very, okay. like, fussy. Very, yeah. so, <laughs> and that's even in the dark and even from a long distance away, so it's the smell. Um, and that's what's giving them some microbes, um, which is great for them. (laughs) Um, But squash bugs are not the only ones who don't pass on microbes to their offspring. Um, Amphibians don't really do it either. So for two new stories for the price of one, (laughs) uh, just this week, it was found that worm-like animals um, have also been shown as the first amphibians to pass microbes onto their children and their offspring. Mm, Um, So Caecilians, I think they're called, are a snake-like amphibian and they live in a, in aquatic and subterranean environments. Mm. And in some species, the mothers produce like this special kind of um, t- 
to make it sound nicer, nutrient-rich skin. <laughs> but essentially, it's like a fatty layer of tissue. <laughs> and then the juveniles tear it off and eat it. Um, and among amphibians, they're unique for feeding their young at all. Most, most amphibians kind of just like have their eggs and then leave them <laughs> when they're born or like even before they're hatched um, and, you know, fend for your own. But um, these are really good to study amphibians and how microbes are passed on mm. because they actually do feed their young. So kind of like how humans breastfeed their children, which is um, some of the, the way that our mums pass on a lot of microbes and other goodies to us, um, this new study from the Florida Museum of Natural History shows that this fatty tissue or skin <laughs> that the juveniles eat also passes on microbes, um, and it kind of gives them a healthy jump start. Cute. Oh. Oh, cool. <laughs> Yum. I think. I don't know. I have mixed feelings. Uh, maybe don't think about eating amphibian skin too much. I try not But to. it's nutrient-rich. <laughs> so are vitamin tablets. Uh. Like... All right. Well, let's enough enough microbes. Let's get on to talking about robots after our first song. Before that, remember you can catch our past episodes on wherever you get your podcasts, and follow us on Twitter or whatever it's called these days. And here's our first song. It's Robots by Flight of the Concords. You are listening to Radio Silence here on Radio Fodder, and that was Robots by Flight of the Concords, which has got to be my favourite robot song. And Kai was like, hey, we're doing a show on robots. What songs do you guys have? I really wasn't sure he'd let me play it, but I'm so stoked. I'm so stoked that it's it's opened the show because sets the mood. We're talking robots today, folks. Science of robots. And Kai, I believe that you are going to start us off with some really cool robot science. Yes, I'm going to talk about robot science and sort of taking it back to like the childhood robot theme that we started off with the fun facts. Mm, mm. I'm going to talk about some of the robots that absolutely fascinated me when I was a kid. And they were the Mars Rovers, Spirit oh. and Opportunity. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Or as we call it at ScienceWorks, Oppie. <laughs> What's why? Uh, there's like a whole new planetarium show that's oh. like Tycho goes to Mars and meets Oppie. Oh, oh gosh. Okay. <laughs> there you go. I need to go uh, to Yeah. I don't know. Maybe you're, you're a bit outside the age bracket for that show. How dare you? <laughs> I there watch is it. no <laughs> upper <laughs> limit on kids. I unironically watch the Magic School Bus reboot on Netflix, like just mm. for fun sometimes. So I am definitely the target audience for this. <laughs> yeah, all you all these kids is like, you don't understand, you know. <laughs> I was there when Oppie went to <laughs> Uh anyway, let's talk let's talk about robots. Um yeah, I just thought it was really cool that you've got these little machines driving around on Mars mm-hmm. and drilling into rocks and taking photos. Mm. And also thought it was really cool that space exploration is a perfect jobs for ro- like a perfect job for robots. Mm, yeah. You know, they can under- uh, they can withstand some you know extraordinarily harsh conditions, and they don't need to come back home. So <laughs> you know, Tycho has to go to Mars to visit. Oppie doesn't doesn't. Come <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and like some you know, this is not on Mars, but the the like landers they sent to Venus just mm, got crushed yeah. in a yeah. matter of minutes because the conditions there are so harsh. But yeah. the it's like, good thing is that they got some data before that. Yeah, so. right? It's like, well, split seconds of data and then, you know, and then, bye, you robot. Know, melt <laughs> and get crushed and oh, okay. Um, 
You've done your job. <laughs> yes. But obviously sending anything to space is a challenge. Mm. And that also includes sending robots to space because a Mars rover is a little bit more complicated than, say, a remote control car that you can drive around. Is it, though? Well, you know, remote control car, you can sort of see it and <laughs> it's right there in front of you. Yeah. Problem with Mars is so far away, it can take up to 20 minutes mm. to send a signal to Mars and then that time again for it to return. Yeah. So if you're trying yeah, to drive right. your little car, <laughs> you know, you press the forwards button. and then It's you... not a good lag time. <laughs> 40 minutes. Yeah, it's like, oh, okay, we've crashed into something now. <laughs> um, yeah, okay, fair. So to get over that problem, you've got to send signals and commands to these robots in advance, which means then the robot needs to have some level of autonomy to know mm. what to do when it's driving along and, oh, no, there's a rock in front of me. Like, what should I do? I, yeah, you know. right. So you program them, right, to have mm. to yeah, you have not, to have not. And drive that, through rock. Well, yeah, so... Round. Can't go under it. Yeah. Around it. Yay. And there's various different algorithms for finding, you know, paths through rocky terrain. Like the simplest one could be if you see a rock in front of you, you stop and wait 40 minutes for Earth to tell you what to do about it. Mm. But you can do a little bit better than that. And, you know, you can program the the, the robots to go, okay, where can I go that's not covered in rocks and find different ways around the terrain. Yeah. And it's really interesting that robots are sort of becoming more and more autonomous. They can make these decisions for themselves. Yeah. And, you know, even on Earth, the self-driving cars are getting better and better at making decisions. And, you know, they've got a lot more decisions to make other than don't run into rocks. You know, they've got to look for different people, <laughs> people. and mm. cars Dogs. and traffic lights and everything. Mm. Um, but it really kind of highlights the difference between an automated robot, like something in a production line that, you know, builds a car or something, it's got yeah. one job and it follows the recipe yeah. over and over again yeah. versus something that's autonomous like a space rover mm, that has, has to, you know, to make kind of think for itself, essentially make decisions and, you know, do its own thing. So on the topic of, um, you know, cool robots that had ties to space, another robot that's being developed by NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratories is called Spot. Mm-hmm. And you might think that sounds like a dog's name. Mm-hmm. And that's because it is. Oh my <laughs> gosh. No, I think I've heard of this. Yeah, yeah you might have seen it. Little it's, yellow yep. dog-like yeah. robot thing. Yeah. And its little yes. legs are like sort of bent backwards like oh dog gosh, legs yeah. are. Yeah, and it's it, so cute. And when it moves, it looks very dog-like. It's, it's very cool. Yeah. Um, and one of the advantages of making a robot like this is because it walks on legs, it can do things that robots that have wheels aren't very mm. good at. Right. For example, walking upstairs. Oh. Right? Yeah. (laughs) So they're looking at using this robot in future space (sighs) exploration, but at the moment it's... For all of the staircases in space? Well, staircases, rocks, you know. (laughs) Yeah, okay. All sorts of things. Different terrain that isn't wheel-friendly. Yeah, that's right. And to sort of demonstrate its capabilities, it was part of a a robot competition where they set up a a course for the robots that had to navigate themselves. And there's, there's been a few different ones of these. The first one was like in a tunnel. And this is important because it's underground, yeah. which means it's really hard to get signals down to the mm. robot. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So it has to be really good at making its own decisions. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the things that they 
have done is they get the robots to drop like a Hansel and Gretel trail of signal <laughs> repeaters. Yeah. So you can be deep underground and, you know, send your signal out yeah. and mm. you can get communication. But Incredible. it's even more interesting is some of the things that they have done to like teach these robots to do their own thing. You know, they've, they've programmed them to be able to make decisions. And there was another test where they basically set up like a house environment and, you know, they had to get the robot to like go upstairs and find a mannequin that was like at body temperature. Oh my gosh, what? <laughs> and they were teaching, like programming this robot as like a search dog, essentially, yeah. but completely robotic. So it could go in this house and find the human and that was the competition, like get in and, and get out as fast That's as you can. So That's so useful. Very, yeah. So yeah. Like in rescue. disasters and things. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And on the topic of disasters, it had like different sensors as well. And there's a whole suite of different robots that they've got for these sorts of competitions. But Things like sensing gas leaks. Mm, so they could yeah. send the robot in, find where the gas leak's coming from, and then send that information back out again. And cool. it was like semi-autonomous, so like finding where that gas yeah. leak was. So that's all pretty cool. Um, yeah, talking about robots exploring harsh environments, one robot that I recently learned about, it's got an acronym that I don't really know how to say, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll say the whole thing. is the Buoyant Rover for Underwater under ice exploration. So the acronym is like BRUI, B-R-U-I-E. I don't, it's not the best I've seen. <laughs> BRUI. Anyway, BRUI. Anyway, like let's, dog, <laughs> but I don't know. maybe, maybe, but let's talk about this for a second. Under ice exploration. Yeah. Okay. Hang on. I was so caught up on like <laughs> on trying to acronym. say how to say yeah. the acronym yeah, yeah, yeah. that I didn't actually listen to the words. Or so the that's cool. So Dope. instead of like swimming around like a submarine underwater, it actually drives around underneath the ice upside down. <laughs> um, what? I love because that. Because it floats in the water. Yeah. So it floats up to the yeah. ice. And then it can... And then it has wheels that And because it doesn't the... need to breathe because it's a flipping robot. robot. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. So instead of, like, swimming so around, clever. it drives around under the ice. So smart. What the heck? <laughs> oh, and I it's, love it. Like, it's been tested under the ice here on Earth yeah. in mm-hmm. Antarctica and, you know, works really well. <laughs> but the reason they're interested in developing this is because they want to send well, something like this to Jupiter's moon mm. Europa, mm-hmm. which is believed to have yeah. a liquid water ocean underneath a layer of ice that covers the whole planet. Mm. And, again, things like getting signals out from a you know thick layer of ice is tricky. Yeah. So, again, it's, it's these harsh environments but also just being able to drive around in this totally alien environment is... <laughs> so cool. That's so cool. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. One more crazy one that I... Under the ice. Oh, I gotcha. <laughs> uh, another one that was, you know, pretty interesting in the way that it moved around was called the Rollercopter. And it's a combination of like a drone, you know, flying mm. copter with wheels... So, like, it can sit on the ground and drive around, and then when it has to fly, it can take off and fly somewhere else. And Incredible. Like, it seems obvious, like, oh, you know, why would you drive anywhere if you can fly? But it takes a lot more energy to fly. Well, there's a TV show, Dogcopter, like an animated... Oh, it's okay. a thing. It's definitely a thing, though, where Dogcopter can, like, walk around, but then he can also, like, helicopter. <laughs> same energy. All anyway. Right. Yep. But I just thought it was cool. Apparently, this rollercopter thing can travel 10 times further than a drone could because it has the option of landing and driving around 
when it doesn't need to fly. Yeah. <laughs> so makes sense. Save energy no. when you can. I love it. I'm also uh, just picturing like a little kid with a helicopter hat, but also like the rolling shoes. <laughs> oh my god, heelys in a helicopter yeah. hat. That's an unstoppable combination. I have the hat. I just need to get some oh, rolly shoes. Very yes. Nice. <laughs> cool. Amazing. Well, that <laughs> robots are so cool. I just I don't know. I didn't expect to get so hyped about robots. Um, but I'm going to take us into our next on-theme song. We have Robot Rock by Daft Punk. Welcome back to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus here on Radio Fodder. That was Robot Rock by Daft Punk. And today we're talking all about robots. Catriona, what have you got? Well, you know, as we're both aware and probably all of us aware are aware, the, the future of robotics is rapidly evolving and robots are kind of becoming more human-like. So we need to really think about how we're going to get better, smoother human-robot interactions. Okay. You know? We've got to get along with them because, you know, after all, they're already in our homes <laughs> for a lot of us. Don't want to be like that Flight of the Concord song where they kill everybody. Yeah. I like to think that, I don't know, I, I, I would get along with a robot. People yeah. have told me I'm very robotic sometimes. <laughs> I think it's the autism, but, like, I, <laughs> well, I talk like a robot. I think, like, I bumped a Roomba once and was like, oh, no, sorry. Oh. <laughs> not sorry, I, I take it back. Use, like, I know we're not talking AI specifically, yeah, but yeah. do you use chat GPT and do you say please and thank you? I do you... say please. Okay, that's a good sign. Mm. Do you say please and thank you when asking it to do things? Please? Depends how mad I am with it. Okay. <laughs> You're not getting this right. You don't earn a please. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, like, you know, we, we do need to consider how we're interacting with robots. And mm. in terms of development, people need to consider how robots are going to interact with us. Right. So in the mid-1990s, the media equation experiments at Stanford University changed the way that we, in general, society, think about computers. And the experiments were simple. I'm not sure if either of you are aware of them. Not sure. But they centered around the question of how do we treat computers, <laughs> which <laughs> okay. are essentially like the brains of robots. Yeah. Um, and so participants of the study were asked to interact with a computer that acted socially for a few minutes, after which they were asked to give feedback about that interaction. Mm -hmm. And so essentially participants would, would say if they were on, like, let's say computer number one and they'd just been chatting or, like, interacting with computer number one, if they were asked to do the feedback on computer number one, they were like, oh, yeah, you were great. Like, you know, you, you, you did a good job. <laughs> um, but if they were giving feedback on a different computer, they'd be more critical of computer number one. Oh, so, so they're like, like they're filling in the yeah, form on that computer. Yeah, that, okay. yeah. So, like, you know, interact with it. Now, on that same computer, you know, how did you feel about it? <laughs> um, <laughs> and so that's, that's kind of... So interesting. Yeah, it's like people who were responding didn't... didn't want to hurt, hurt the, the computer's feelings, feelings. yeah to its but face it's like, I know, but funnily anonymous, enough behind your back yeah anonymous it's fine. feedback is very different to like face to face <laughs> feedback no I get it but yeah like, <laughs> computer oh, so like so interesting wow seemingly simple experiment but it it you know, created this this idea of a phenomenon that's known as the computers as social actors. So essentially, yeah, okay. it's showing that people are hardwired to respond somewhat socially to even technology mm. that well, presents itself as like kind of vaguely social. Do you reckon that like science fiction, for example, with like, you know, Star Wars with C-3PO, mm. like it's a common yeah. thing, right, where we've had these robot characters that are 
portrayed as like friends, as mates, yeah. as part mm. of the like main team of like lead actors and stuff. And we grew up on these movies. Mm. Are we sort of like primed by that to sort of see computers and robots as like pals mm. and like that we should mm. treat them in this like social kind of pro- social way? But then there are computers like, is it Hal from yeah. 2001 A Space yeah, Odyssey? Well. And you're like, mm. <laughs> yeah, well, who knows? But, but um, yeah, whether they're good guys or bad guys. Yeah, the media has very much personified. Yes, them. absolutely. They've been and personified. Given them, like, That's the thing. Personalities and. Um, so yeah, these these studies show that people are polite to computers. They treat computers with female voices differently to male voices. <laughs> of course they do. <laughs> and oh. and uh, yeah, even like faces on a screen can kind of like if if you sort of see a face on a screen and a computer like sort of in the background you'd mm. be like oh that's a person or like you, you sort of work around it physically mm. like you sort of mm. see it as a body or as a person mm. um the kind of same way that you would handle a real person around you um <laughs> so even though very few people are under delusions that robots are people exactly uh we do tend to defer to them kind of just like we would any other person um and while that may sound like the beginnings of I don't know like a black mirror episode or something <laughs> yeah. um this tendency is precisely what allows us to use robots socially in terms of making them caregivers or collaborators or companions mm. so for example I, I don't know if either of you have heard of now the humanoid robot don't yeah. so. I've worked with now like with with kids and that's really what now is for yeah. um so now it was built and designed uh, for pediatric healthcare. Right. So it's a little cute robot. It's like 58 centimeters tall oh. and it's got a little, it, it can be in different colors. Yeah. <laughs> and essentially this little robot is really cute. So it's an ideal candidate for engaging and motivating children during rehabilitation. Yeah. Um, it's got lifelike gest- gestures such as like kind of this gentle swaying. <laughs> it's really weird. You talk to it, it's just like swaying there. Um, but it, it blinks and it, it responds to you to touch to sound. It, it Its head movements are kind of like it's watching you. And so it's like actually uh, okay. looking at you and interacting with you. And it makes it really seem engaged. So um, for young children and their families, rehabilitation is often emotional and it can be difficult for health practitioners to, like, give the time and dedication that you need to, like, really get the children involved and on board. And so robots, the solution. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So a collaborative research group across uh, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, uh, Royal Children's Hospital and Swinburne University of Technology programmed now for three different roles to meet the needs of a therapy assistant. So you need three different things if you want a robot (laughs) to help a child in rehab. Um, You need it to be a motivator, a demonstrator and an instructor. Uh So as a motivator, now it provides both both verbal encouragement and enticements to the children. So it's like, all right, if you get done, I'm going to show you my awesome dance moves. That's actually a statement it says. Oh, my gosh, yes, I love that. That is motivating to me. Yeah, so it's like got promise of rewards such as like dances, music, jokes. Great. Um, I would do rehab for jokes, absolutely. And then I guess demonstration is now's most practical function. So there are lots and lots of joints. Um, so it's got legs, it's got yep. arms, and it can actually introduce and describe each exercise that a child needs to do. So yep. perform the action mm. um, and then invites the child to perform a set with it. And then the third role is instructor. So it does lead the child through like a series of activities in the form of a game to try and make it a little bit more fun. Mm. Um and while it's it's still kind of in development, we don't see these in like <laughs> everywhere yet. <laughs> but um, you know, the the question is: Would a social robot 
like mm. now command the same authority as like an adult, like a, a healthcare mm. practitioner. And the study showed that um, the motivation can can kind of be significantly boosted for both children and adults so they can get adults on board as well uh. with these cute little robots. <laughs> Great. No, I can see that working on me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I just also want to talk about how else we can work with robots um, because one thing, a task that seems really simple but is an important mm. skill for particularly service and medical robots um, and is actually somewhat challenging to accomplish is passing objects. Oh, yeah. So this is prior to the development of, like, you know, this cool sticky tape that (laughs) (laughs) I was talking about. Well, yeah. Um, But a researcher at Monash University essentially just watched so many people pass objects between themselves over (laughs) and over, watching humans pass objects. And she monitored um, the – so this particular researcher monitored the grip force at the point of passing, like the exact point of passing, and learned a very simple rule. So – the giver is responsible for the object's safety and the receiver is kind of maintain like in charge of maintaining efficiency. So essentially the giver ensures that it doesn't right. drop or fall okay. and the receiver usually controls how quickly the object is taken out of the hand. Interesting. And so once um, the, the, the rule was in place, um, this researcher, Elizabeth Croft, uh, could encode robots to follow that rule. And so that enabled robots to pass objects in a very oh. fluid motion mm. without dropping the object Watch or requiring a receiver to, like, yank it at the other end. That's so cool. Um, yeah, it's really cool. And then she performed a similar study when considering how humans and robots can reach for an object at the same time. Like, mm. you know, the, oh, our hands. <laughs> 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 um, oh, and... For example, if you reach a doorway at the same time as another person, often you you kind of do like the brief pause. You yeah. sort of look at each other. You work out who's going to go first. Who's going to be more assertive in this situation? And then yeah. you awkwardly both go at the same time yeah. again. <laughs> well, that's what robots would do because robots don't have that kind of consideration. Yeah. They're like, yeah, but I'm go- I-, I need to go through that door. <laughs> so after observing people and determining kind of the, the rules in a similar way, like mm. just by watching hundreds of people do this. Um, she encoded robots to read social cues when sharing objects and, and space with people and then found that after she'd done that, humans were so much more happy to interact with robots and work with robots. <laughs> <laughs> so interesting. I want this list of social rules that she's <laughs> Yeah, please out give me a list of how to behave. <laughs> right? Like, she's done the work. She's watched the humans. She's, like, manually scored bunches of videos i'm sure she has the yeah, data i love if it she's giving it to robots can she give it to the humans that need it to that's my only request <laughs> i just want to end on one more thing that she's done um so she kind of sees like male bots that share our f- footpaths in the future uh-huh. and so that's probably going to be tricky because as we pointed out robots have to navigate around pedestrians and people yeah so she programmed robots to follow people walking around oh, um and with sort of the people's consent yes okay. yes and taking in their knack of like cutting corners and right. meandering rather than yep. traveling in straight lines and that's what the robots need to learn how to do yeah they don't just go in a straight line like yeah, people are lazy to... so the robots had to learn to be lazy um yeah. and so eventually the robots started to move in a more socially acceptable manner 
banner and reach their destinations faster as well. So interesting. Because they started cutting corners like people do. Yeah, because, you know, because you're like, oh, humans are lazy and robots are not. Normally that's one of the appeals of robots or the things that, you know, is marketed like, oh, you know, robots will be better than humans because they're not lazy. But, like, we're actually having to program our robots to be more lazy (laughs) to exist in this world that humans also still exist in. Yeah. So to ensure that the future is robot friendly, you know, engineers and programmers need to think about people in Mm. their design. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. It's always about us. (laughs) Yeah. So you kind of need to think about, okay, what kind of tech would my mother use or something like that? (laughs) Um, So, yeah, let's let's keep humans in the loop as we put more robots out there. Very cool. Sounds good. Yep. All right. Well, we've got another song. This is Tiny Little Robots by Zoe Fox and the Rocket Clocks, and we'll see you after this. Hello and welcome back to Radio Silence on Radio Fodder where we're bringing science into focus. That was Tiny Little Robots by Zoe Fox and the Rocket Clocks. Because we're talking all about robots, Kate's going to tell us about some robots. Are they tiny and they little? I mean, yeah. I actually, <laughs> actually, yeah. It worked. Um, so, yeah, I want to talk about a particular field of robotics, stream of robotics, area of robotics. Um before I get into that, I just, you know, it's pretty common in in robotics to mimic nature, right? Right. Yeah. Um, because, you know, and we've, we've heard a bit about Talking it about, like, dogs today, and right? Stuff and, yeah, yeah because humans. sometimes, like, nature does some stuff really well. It does. Um, and Good sometimes <laughs> it can be really hard to, like, you know, come up with that ourselves, first of all. But mm. then... Then we're given the challenge of having to, like, manufacture the complexity that nature has, like, figured yeah. out, right? Yeah. Manufacturing that level of complexity can be costly, can be hard, can be challenging. So I want to tell you about a field of robotics. Um, it's called necrobotics, where they don't have to manufacture <laughs> any of nature's complexity. Okay, I'm thinking about what necro means. Mm, mm. So the Wikipedia entry of uh, necrobotics, it's it's the practice of using biotic materials or dead organisms um, as robotic components. <laughs> so it's, it's necromancy, but for robots. Um, but and- science. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> oh gosh, sorry team. But absolutely, absolutely science. But it's really interesting, right? Because it's like, there's a whole Wikipedia entry on mm. necrobotics and there's this whole like, oh, we've coined the field necrobotics. But when you like dive a little deeper into like, okay, tell me more about this like field of necrobotics. It all actually seems to come from this one study that was published like a year ago. So July 2022. (laughs) So there's still time. There's still time for necrobotics as a field to have the beautiful blossoming future that it maybe deserves. I don't know. We can draw our own conclusions (laughs) at the end. Um, But I'm going to tell you about this study that has, they have coined uh, the field necrobotics based on this. So essentially, July last year, Researchers in the Preston Innovation Lab, so these guys are engineers, mechanical engineers, Mm -hmm. um, at Rice University in Houston, Texas, published a paper in Advanced Science um, introducing this concept of necrobotics. um, And they demonstrated its capability by repurposing dead spiders (laughs) as robotic grippers. As grippers, okay. Grippers, so like... Uh, claws, like the claw, you know, but but spider-sized. Um, and, okay, it's actually very, very cool and very, very clever. And... <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm just thinking that uh, Kai, your sticky tape might not have a, a purpose anymore. We've got we've yeah, got sorry. spider we've grippers, got spiders, and that's cooler. That's, so uh, the way yeah. the story goes, we have our graduate student, graduate engineering student, PhD student, Faye Yap, who was cleaning up the lab one night and she saw a dead spider in the lab. Now, I don't know if you guys spend a lot of time looking at dead spiders, but you may or may not have noticed that when a spider is dead, they curl right up. Yes, yes. they do. Right? They, they're they yep. all like curled up and clenched up. And they're up. never as big as they were when they're alive. So mm. you can't show people like, there's this massive spider. Yeah. <laughs> no, definitely strong. Um, but that's because all of their, they have all of their um, flexor muscles mm-hmm. go into rigor mortis. Right. Which is, you know, rigor mortis, it's when we all go stiff when we die, because, mm-hmm. you know, to very, very much simplify the process, we need energy to relax our muscles. So mm-hmm. when we're dead, mm-hmm. we no longer have the ATP, our muscles contract. And so humans, yep. we go like stiff as a board. Spiders curl up in mm-hmm. this rigor mortis state. Mm-hmm. Now, graduate engineering student Faye Yap has seen this curled up little spider, and she, <laughs> being the scientist that she is, thought to herself, why the heck does that happen? Why do they curl up when they're dead? I want to know more. And at this point, she's just like, this has got nothing to do with her degree, nothing to do. Yeah. She's just curious because, like, science draws in curious people. Like, <laughs> I, I relate to this. I love this for her. And I love the whole story behind this. And essentially, she did a bit of reading. And she found out that the way spiders' physiologies work is, like, really, really interesting. So they have, um, in their legs, they have flexor muscles, but they don't have extensor muscles. Okay. So, oh. like in humans, we we kind of all of our muscles are in pairs, right? Yeah, so yeah. Your bicep is like your flexor, and then your tricep is your extensor. Yeah, mm. and that's of your elbow joint, right? And so you've got these working in pairs, flexion, extension. Now, spiders are really, really cool. They have these flexor muscles, but instead of extensor muscles, they have tubes that work via hydraulic pressure. Of yeah. their, like essentially their blood. It's hemolymph, which is mm. the spider equivalent of blood. Yeah. Yeah. So they pump this like liquid hydraulic pressure to extend their legs, but then they have these muscles to flex. And the reason scientists think that maybe they evolved this way because not having to make room for extensor muscles means that you can have really, really big flexor muscles. And gripping things uh, like that is much more important to a spider. Like, we want that to be strong. We want our grippers to be strong. We. And then, we, we the spiders. Yeah. They want their grippers to Something be strong. Something you want to tell us, Kate? Evolutionarily. Um, and then, in all of their legs, they have these this, this tube system essentially yeah. coming into all these valves right in the like middle in their body mm-hmm. where the hemolymph comes out and they use this hydraulic pressure to extend and to contract. So Faye was like, oh my gosh, I have an idea, guys. <laughs> Brilliant. So what she's done and what she does is she gets a little like needle tip. Yep. So she gets the spiders and then she gets a bunch of uh, wolf spiders, um, kills them. <laughs> they're not all dead already, like using uh, cold temperatures to sort of freeze them and then mm-hmm. they, they shrivel up kind of in this mm-hmm. in this state. And then right in the center of their body, right where the, like, valves, valve system, sorry, for this, like, tube. Because obviously when they die, also no hemolymph, mm. no pressure anymore, which is yeah. why they curl up. Mm. So their flexor mm-hmm. muscles go into rigor mortis, but then there's nothing to extend. Needle tip in the back, syringe, super glue to, like, seal it. Mm. Air pressure on a little, like, air pressure <laughs> oh, syringe. Gosh. Apply pressure. 
the legs open. Remove pressure, <laughs> the legs close. Legitimately. And there's like, she was like, it worked. There's a video on YouTube. It's amazing. Um, just Google like YouTube necrobotics. It'll come up. And like Rice University put up like yeah, an interview yeah. with her. And she was like, it, it was amazing. It worked first try, actually. It was <laughs> shocking. Um, and then, so they were able to do this and create these little like robotic spider grippers and they could lift 130% of their body weight and sometimes more. So at least 130% sometimes more. And they use these little things as videos of them using them to like lift little like circuit boards um, and carry like really delicate things around um, and like polyurethane cubes. There's one lifting another spider (laughs) up, um, (laughs) which is like, Absolutely crazy. And they found that, like, they were able to do this. And they were like, "Mm, probably, though, one of the problems is that, like, it starts to wear down after Mm, a while. Like, in terms of if we're thinking about actually utilizing this to, like, we don't need to 3D print parts anymore. Like, we want to, like, Mm -hmm. because that was one of, look, that was one of the other things that they said that I thought was really funny was, like, you know, spiders are biodegradable. (laughs) So this is an environmentally friendly way to do it. And it was the choice of the words environmentally friendly that kind of, I was like, we've killed spiders to do this, but insect life or like spider life. Is that environmentally friendly? Mm -hmm. Like I get that bodies are more biodegradable than plastic. Like I get that, but I don't think that's the only factor that we maybe need to consider. Um, Ethically sourced spiders? Wolf spiders are plentiful. Um, I don't know. But they said that they were quite, you know, relatively robust in in the sense that they were able to get about two days or 1,000 open-close cycles (laughs) um, before they started to decay. And then if they covered them in, like, a beeswax um, or some other sort of coating, that increased the longevity. Hmm. And importantly, beeswax is also biodegradable. So, like, you. So, this is all, I guess, maybe... (laughs) environmentally friendly i don't know but it it did seem like yeah they had a lot of points around how the biodegradable nature of spiders and how you can find them everywhere and so this is a resource that's really untapped and cool and like i'm not sure how much i agree with all of that but what i do see the merit of is like the whole system of a spider's like anatomy and physiology and this whole like muscles balanced with hydraulic pressure Mm. that we can then Mm. harness just with air even uh air pressure like it's the coming back to that idea of like that is an amazing complexity that nature has already figured out and it would be expensive and hard for us to manufacture mm. something that complex that works that well mm. and you know so that's kind of where i see this as being a really smart mm. approach if we don't have to like manufacture that complexity mm-hmm. but realistically i think the way this field is going to go is okay maybe we should just have a better look at how it works and how can we yeah. recreate it using not mm. actual spider carcasses because i'm thinking of how many people in society like okay so if we go back to what i was talking about you know human people yeah interacting, interacting with, with robots, robots they ain't gonna be yeah. super fans of no. like the little spider nah <laughs> i already know a few people who'd be like oh my gosh that's nope not yeah. touching one of those <laughs> and like if you're not if you don't think like that like watch the videos on youtube they're so cool like i was i spent so long just watching these little spider grippers being like man that's so smart but like i can see a lot of people in the world not getting on board with this um but you know necrobotics i it's i cool. think that there is a future for it in some form so what you're saying is it's not dead it's not dead. no <laughs> i'm gonna bring it back we're all, we'll revive it as <laughs> we'll, a science field yep We'll necromance it. 
Oh, gosh. Um, well, <laughs> on that note, yeah. look out for some – well, I think Cade's just given you some homework. Uh, <laughs> just go watch some uh, necromancy and dancing spiders. Um, so don't forget that you can catch all of the science that we share here on Radio Silence, anywhere that you catch your podcasts. Um, and that's all that we've got for today. And uh, playing us off is some music. Now, I just wanted to slip this joke in here. What is a robot's favorite type of music? Robotic? Heavy metal. (laughs) 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 Yes, yes. Electronic would have worked, whatever. Um, But very, very on Cade's theme, (coughs) we're ending with Necromancy and Dancing by Bear Ghost.